Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And we do have the opportunity to once again set our minds to this most important task of seeing what God has revealed to us through His Word. I was telling someone at the end of the service a couple of weeks ago that the most important thing that you could ever do as a Christian is to set your heart and your mind to both know and understand this Word. I was sharing with them that in Psalm 19, there's a very interesting phrase Um, If you notice Psalm 19, you know that it's all about declaring the value of God's Word and uh, specifically because of what the Word produces. And so in Psalm 19 in verse 7, David states that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And that word there for simple in the Hebrew is actually the idea of an open gate. Um, And so it's essentially describing the idea of an open mind. And so He makes wise the open-minded. And so I find it fascinating that in a day in which everyone is so confused and so disoriented and has very little conviction on how to think about life and interpret the times, uh, frankly, whether it's in the church, but especially outside of the church, what I find so fascinating is that what keeps on being so celebrated in our culture is this idea of an open mind, uh, as if open-mindedness is some kind of virtue. The scriptures say that the value of God's word is that it closes your mind. That is to say that it shuts that gate, so to speak, so that you might finally become wise. And so you want to be a closed-minded person. That is the place, according to the scriptures, of wisdom. And so just in the way that God has designed the human mind, whatever pours into you is eventually what you become. It's what shapes you and guides you and, of course, controls how you think. That is very clear from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And so if what's constantly pouring into you is just a fountain of error and a fountain of falsehood, we ought not be surprised as to why we're so confused. But if what is constantly pouring into you is divine and transcendent truth that has been forever settled or fixed in heaven, as the psalmist states, uh, in other words, the word of God, then you will be a much more grounded person as you are living as God's creature in God's world. You will know how to think and interpret the issues of life. You will not be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of thinking, as Paul talks about. You will not be the product of some fleeting cultural ideology or some wave of folly that has crept into the church. Rather, you will be able to stand firm in the face of ever-changing error, And so that is why we set our minds to this task every single week. And so for those of you who are newer with us, this is why we as a church are sequentially committed to working through the scriptures chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, We want all of it. We don't want to miss any of it. And so we have been working through the gospel of Luke for a very long time. And so we do find ourselves this morning in the eighth chapter, and particularly verses 22 through 25, a very famous and precious passage to many, 
This is just a tremendous portion of Scripture that kicks off an incredible section in the gospel that actually goes all the way through to chapter 9 and verse 17. And it is a section that begins to demonstrate in a very profound way who exactly Jesus is, and therefore how we can but also must relate to him. And so let me read these verses for you that will be the focus of our time this morning. Again, this is chapter 8 of Luke, in verses 22 through 25. Here's what he records as a historian under the inspiration of the Spirit. He writes, now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake, and so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing, And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? In his uh, wonderful book, which I would commend to any of you, a book entitled The Pursuit of God, Um, A.W. Tozer famously stated that whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That is to say that if you have a low view of God, that will inevitably shape the course and the outcome of your life in a very significant way. It will determine, again, how you interpret the times, how you make your decisions, what shapes your loves. In other words, it will order the totality of your entire life as you live it out in God's world and under God's gaze. If your understanding of the person and the nature of God is small and shallow and limited, then that will have a direct impact in how you live and, of course, what you choose to pursue or not pursue. And if you have a high view of God and a deep view of Him and a rich view of him that's been shaped by his very own self-disclosed revelation in the scriptures, then that too will establish your ways and determine the outcome of your life. And of course, in a very different way than the one who has a low view of God or doesn't consider him in any significant way. And so not only will your view of God have a direct impact on the trajectory and the results of your life as it informs and controls all of your decisions, both big and small, but it will also shape how you handle your day-to-day life. It will shape in color, for example, how you laugh, how you hope, how you smile, even as we're going to see how you sleep. It will impact your fears and anxieties, your doubts, your uncertainties, your joys, your hopes, your sorrows, your griefs. But the one thing that none of us can do is sit in a place of neutrality. You either have a low view of God or you have a high view of him, but one thing that you can have is a neutral view of him. Either you are gripped and compelled and brought low upon a right understanding of the nature and the person and the work of God as you see him truly laid out before you in the scriptures, or you shrug at him. 
And so how you view the God of the scriptures, hear this, will necessarily affect your life. Again, it will determine both the course and the outcome of what your life is and therefore what your life produces. Many might think that they're neutral or just apathetic toward him. They neither love him nor hate him, but they're just indifferent toward him. But that's really just to reveal that they have a low view of him. And because nowhere in the scriptures, when a person is confronted with the person of God and they come into an understanding of his holiness and his majesty and his purity, never are they left neutral. They are always brought low to their face and compelled to put their hands over their mouth. And so this morning, we begin a wonderful section in the Gospel of Luke in which Luke now wants to reveal all the more exactly who Jesus is, that he is not merely some rabbi or Jewish itinerant preacher who got lucky with a few coincidental events that just sort of appeared to be miraculous. Rather, he wants to make clear that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord over everything, that he is not just part of God in some way. He is not merely filled with the power of God. He is not just a special person anointed with a unique purpose and in a unique way. Rather, Jesus Christ, as Luke will make clear, is himself the very fullness of God. In other words, he wants to make clear that Jesus is that omnipotent Lord over all of creation. And so he is not one to be thought passively about. He is not one to be trifled with. He is not someone or something just to consider or something merely to try. Rather, he is that divine creator and sustainer of all that is, including you and me. And so what Luke wants to do over the next four passages is reveal the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over multiple spheres of creation. This morning, we're going to see his lordship over nature. Next time, we'll see his lordship over all that is spiritual, specifically the demonic, We'll see his power and authority over sickness and disease, and then the final week we'll see his sovereign power and lordship over that great but ever-present enemy of ours called death. And so the compelling question throughout each of these sections will be the consistent question that in light of what is revealed, do you have a true and abiding faith in him? What is your view of this man who in our text this morning, can calm even the winds and the waves, and they obey him? Do you believe that he truly is that sovereign creator and sustainer and Lord of everything, that all of creation bows to his word? What are your thoughts and personal decisions and joys and fears and anxieties and hopes, those things that keep you up at night? What do those things declare about what you truly think and believe about him? That will be the consistent, compelling question throughout the rest of this chapter. That will be the question that I will be asking every single week because that is the question that Luke wants to provoke in us. And so Luke's tactic for getting us to ask that question within our own lives at a personal level, is to put before us certain images of Jesus, images of his power, images of his authority and lordship. 
that he is genuinely the most compelling figure in all of creation and history. And so my hope for you is that the remainder of this chapter might create faith in you, where perhaps there's still doubt. And it might cause your eyes to be lifted on high as the prophet writes to see who it is that gives to us life and breath and all things. Who it is that sheds his grace and goodness upon every single one of us, every single second of our daily existence. And what therefore meant for him to stoop? It is to humble himself, to come and rescue this creation that had gone so terribly wrong. And so as we work through this chapter, we're going to see how it is, therefore, that we can, but also how it is that we must relate to him as our sovereign Lord and omnipotent creator. In fact, the best place that you could ever be, as we're going to see, is when you stand in fear of him because you understand him to be who he truly is. That is the goal and purpose of Luke in these passages under the inspiration of the Spirit, and so that is, therefore, the purpose of God with this section. And so let's begin this morning with this famous but important passage, one that no doubt you know well if you've been in church any length of time, but one that is often misapplied. And so look with me, if you would, to verse 22, where Luke sets the scene. He states, now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. Now, the first point of the outline this morning, for those of you who like to take notes, uh, this could be entitled The Calm. I've got three points this morning. This is The Calm, verses 22 through the first half of 23. In Luke's record, the story here begins, as he says, notice, On one of those days, just a vague, undefined day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Mark tells us that this particular day is the same day that he taught the parable of the soils, and so it is chronologically connected to the previous passage. And yet Luke, being a very precise theologian and historian, where he's not been lazy up to this point in giving dates and details, he chooses to make this vague, He chooses to make this somewhat ambiguous, and so he says, now it came about on just one of those days. And so what you should understand is that this is a vague description on purpose, and because it helps us to better relate to what's about to happen. There's no person who decides to calendar chaos, right? No one wakes up knowing that things are about to go incredibly bad for them, and so it's always just one of those days, like any other day. It's just one of those days that Naomi was going to Grammy's house to pick grapes. They're not here this morning, but it was just one of those days that Tom and Judy were going down to their property in Woodhaven. And so this is usually how chaos and panic begins. Never expected. It's never planned for. It's always just a normal day like any other day. But we know from Mark that this is tightly connected to that day that he spoke the parable of the soils. And so if you remember, Jesus there got into a boat and began to teach this very important parable to this massive crowd. 
And so on that day, Jesus had been teaching for the entire day. Crowd was large. It was pressing in on him from what's estimated. There were likely tens of thousands of people. And so as it grew and began to press on him, he got into a boat with his disciples. He pulled out onto a lake so that the water could function as an amplification system for his voice, and he began to teach. And so this was a long day. This was a day of presumably nonstop talking. He was perhaps even healing. He was being pulled on. He was being barraged by constant questions. He was teaching, and so it was no doubt a very draining day. I have spent the day teaching many times, and I can tell you firsthand how exhausting that can be. There is a a mental and emotional strain that takes place on you. And so it is on this day that Jesus, after teaching and finishing up with this parable of the soils in particular, that he then decides, notice, to go to the other side of the lake. In fact, as we'll see next time, Lord willing, he's going there because he has a divine appointment with a Gadarene demoniac, that is, a demon-possessed man who's spent many years being tortured by a legion of demons. And so Luke records that they set sail. And of course, these are skilled sailors, some of them even professional fishermen, and so they understand how to handle a boat. They understand how to navigate. They know this lake very well. And so they pull out onto the Sea of Galilee and begin to sail. In the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's a very interesting body of water. In fact, I learned this week that it, it is the subject of extreme scientific interest and has always been the object of scientific curiosity. In fact, it is actually one of the most studied bodies of water in all of the world. There are certain elements and properties to this body of water that cause it to be of tremendous interest. In fact, there are certain events that take place on this lake involving both wind and water that perfectly explain the situation that arises in this passage. And so in this particular account, Jesus enters a boat with his disciples and begins to cross this body of water. And Mark tells us that there were other boats with them. Um, In fact, when we think of the disciples, we often just think of the 12, but there were actually many more disciples beyond the 12 that sought to follow Jesus throughout his ministry. In fact, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, there were the 120 waiting in the upper room. And so there were many more than just 12. And so perhaps many of them were also traveling with Jesus to the other side of the lake in these other boats. But in this particular boat, we have Jesus and presumably the 12, this close inner circle of disciples whom he has just chosen. And so in verse 23, Luke states that they were sailing along and notice Jesus falls asleep. Now that is an important detail because first of all, it speaks of his humanity. Um, As I mentioned, he is exhausted. He is completely talked out from this long day of teaching. He has spent the day for the kingdom. He has worn himself out for the cause of the gospel. In fact, Mark tells us in chapter 4 and verse 38 that he was asleep on the cushion. And so he wasn't just sitting there and sort of dozing off for a little bit as they get to the other side of the lake. Rather, the point is that he is now fast asleep. In fact, it's the term afupnao. Um, This was not a quick nap. This is a description describing how he is done for the night. He is fast asleep. 
And so in light of what is to come here, what Luke is doing is creating a very stark contrast. In fact, one commentator writes that the calm mood of the sleeping sovereign stands in vivid contrast to the approaching chaos. In fact, it's interesting how in the Gospels it'll record Jesus as spending the night in prayer many, many times, um, but never is it described as a result of his inability to sleep. Rather, it was always intentional. The demands of his ministry were such that at times, um, the only way he could pull away and commune with his father is if he did it through the night. And so it's always described as a time of intense communion with his father for a particular task that he was about to embark upon. And so he is at all times entrusting himself to the care of the father. He is not one, we could say, who suffered from insomnia. Rather, he sleeps, as one man says, with a kind of sovereign sleep, which is to say that there was nothing outside of him that affected his ability to sleep and to sleep well. And so in his humanity, because remember, while he is 100% God, yet at the same time 100% man in that divine mystery known as the hypostatic union, And so he is 100% man. He lives every moment of his life entrusting himself to the care of his father. And so while Jesus himself is that sovereign Lord of the universe, as we're about to see, in his humanity, Philippians 2 tells us that he was entrusting himself fully to the father at all times. And so the result was that there was no sleepless fretting in the life of Jesus. In fact, as one man says, this is a picture of the calm before the storm, Jesus is asleep in a perfect calm. He does not toss. He does not turn. He does not restlessly stir despite the incredible demands and constant pressures of ministry. Rather, he is curled up on a cushion, content with his teaching, content that he spent his day in service to the kingdom, content that his father is well-pleased with how he spent his day, And so this is the sleep of one who is in complete control. He does not fret. He is not vexed. Rather, he knows who he is and who the Father is perfectly. He orchestrates this moment with purpose. And so as he sleeps, he simultaneously sustains the details of the moment in power. And yet all of it without a single concern or fear. He does it all while he while he is in a very deep, calm, fearless sleep. In fact, he knew that he could stop any storm at any time and in a moment. Colossians 1 states that he, um, talking specifically there about Jesus, that he upholds the universe by the very word of his power. So he knew that any coming storm would literally bow to his word. In fact, he is the one who upholds the coming storm. And so his knowledge of the truth, that he is in control and that he is always in the consistent state of governing all things by his omnipotent pleasure, that is the very truth that allows for the soundness of his sleep. And there is, I think, a very important lesson in that. There's a lesson in becoming convinced as to exactly who Jesus is and exactly who the Father is and understanding the depths of his control and command over everything that may come. 
And so Jesus' theology about himself is what allows him to sleep. And so that is the calm before the storm. The next point of the outline is the storm itself, second half of verse 23 and first half of 24. And so notice Luke states that a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. Now, what makes this account so believable, uh, especially to Theophilus, the one to whom Luke is writing, is that this event or this, this kind of event here is the source of an enormous amount of interest in the scientific community. And because this kind of event was very common and still is very common on the Sea of Galilee, Theophilus would have been very aware of what Luke here is describing. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest body of water in the world. It's a fresh body of water. It sits at about 650 feet below sea level and toward the base of a cluster of mountains called Mount Hermon. And so what happens is that since it is one of the lowest spots on the planet where it's surrounded by plateaus and various ravines and mountains on all sides, essentially, that has some very dramatic drops and all hurling down toward this lake, what happens is that when the wind comes charging down, it actually becomes compressed and begins to then spin inside of this lake, this, this bowl of this lake, essentially, which, of course, speeds it up to create some very violent whirlwinds. In fact, that is the very term that Luke here uses. Sometimes it's a term even used to speak of hurricanes. It's a, it's a vicious, uh, swirling wind. And so this was no small storm. This was a serious event that should be understood as extremely violent. In fact, just to add to that a little bit, the lake itself is um, stratified into three different layers of water, which again is what makes it such a unique body of water. And I'm not going to bore you too much here, but um, there are three different layers that essentially live at three different temperatures. And so each of these sections have their own movements and their own motions. And so they all just sort of operate independently of each other. And so as you could imagine, that becomes the cause then of some very unpredictable turbulence on the surface. And so when you combine the extreme forms of compressed wind that will come to bear upon this very unique mixture of water, the kinds of chaos that can result can not only be sudden and unpredictable, but also violent and deadly. And so this is what happened. Notice he states, and a fierce gale of wind or whirlwind descended upon the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel that the waves were breaking over the boat, and so the boat was already filling up, as he phrases it. And so you could imagine the scene. This was sudden. This was violent. This was devastating. The boat was all over the place. They're now taking on an extreme amount of water, and so they come to a point here of sheer but unrestrained panic. In fact, think about it, but this had to have been a pretty bad situation because some of these men were experienced fishermen who have spent their life on this lake. They understood how to handle a boat. They understood how to navigate through a storm. And yet in verse 24, notice they scream out to Jesus that they are perishing. In fact, that is the word used to speak of complete destruction. This is the inevitable undoing of something. And so this is not a bad situation. This is a deadly situation. This is a cry of sheer panic. 
fact, this is a resolve that they are dead men. There is no hope. There's no escaping this. They understand that they are but moments from death. Again, it's the term here for utter destruction. And so this is chaos. This is a veritable terror within the soul because they understand that there is no controlling this. This is completely out of their hands. This is the devastating realization that they can't fix this. There's no getting out of this. They can't turn back. They can't change their circumstance. They are utterly powerless. And so they are in the midst of the most frightening moment of their life, and they conclude that this is death. And yet Jesus, their great leader, is just sleeping. And so again, if you think I was overstating the case a little bit for the calmness and sovereign nature of his sleep, where sovereign literally means that you are unaffected by anything outside of you, I'm not certain what more proof you need. How do you sleep through this? Screaming winds, crashing waves, water piling into the boat, frightened men scurrying in panic, tackle flying all over the place, probably trying to fruitlessly bail out water. In fact, notice they even cry out to Jesus here with the double vocative. They scream, Master, Master, which again shows how this was a moment of helpless pandemonium. So this is not a good situation. Total chaos. Utter panic seems to be the right phrase. And yet Jesus is sleeping. In fact, it's almost humorous. I mean, Contrast couldn't really be any starker. This is a complete calm in the midst of utter chaos. And so this is the scene. This is the situation. And so in the second half of verse 24 and 25, we then come to notice the calm after the storm. So we saw the calm, we saw the storm. Now we come to the calm after the storm. And so they call out to him that they are dying. They are perishing, present tense, And so they yell at him to get up. Again, this was a cry of panic. This was a distressed cry for last moment help. Notice there's no request here. There's there's no empty filler. This is a distressed cry of the soul. This was an explosion of emotional anxiety produced from total fear. In fact, how our prayers might even come to him at times, right? There are times in which we think about our prayers, we think about our situation, we think about the right way to approach the sovereign Lord of the universe in humility and reverence and fear. We don't presume on him. We even figure out the right biblical language to use as we pray, and we then let our requests be made known to him as we're instructed to do. But then there are those times where all that seems to come out is an anxious cry that's being driven from fear, fear of the unknown, fear perhaps at times of what we think is the inevitable, fear because we're in the midst of it, fear because the storm, whatever it might be, is swamping us. The good news is that notice Jesus wakes up. And that is some pretty good news, right? He will correct them here in a moment, but it is still the cry of his own that awakens him. 
One man points out that the storm may not have awakened him, but the cry of distress from his disciples does. And it is, as we'll see, a cry of unbelief. This is an anxiety-ridden response of fear and unbelief stemming from not yet fully understanding who he is. Again, their theology of him is still developing. And so in the last part of verse 24, he therefore demonstrates who he is. He's going to now help develop their theology. Notice Luke records that Jesus is aroused and immediately he rebukes the wind and the surging waves. In fact, that's how you know that this is bad because Luke rarely uses adjectives. But he rebukes the wind and the surging waves and they stop and become calm. And so this is power. This is authority. This is an obedience by the creation as it obeys the voice of its maker. And notice he does use the word here of rebuke. In fact, this is the same word when he rebukes the unclean spirit in chapter 4 and verse 35, as well as the fever in chapter 4 and verse 39. And it's a very interesting word because it's a word that carries with it a sort of negative connotation. This is what you do when something is out of order. This is what you do when something is doing what it's not supposed to do. In fact, I don't have the time to develop this, but there is a very important theme that you can trace out from Genesis to Revelation, and it is the theme of the sea, where the sea in the scriptures always represents chaos and disorder. In fact, you see it right away in Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the waters. It is described there as formless and void. It is chaotic. There's not yet any order or beauty or purpose And again, I don't have the time to develop this for you, but this is why, for example, we know that there will be no sea in heaven. Revelation 21.1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. In other places in the Gospels, Jesus is described as walking on top of the water. That is to say that he is above the chaos. It does not affect him. In fact, it even serves him. He can literally take that which is chaotic and then use it for his purposes. This is why hell is described as a lake or a sea of fire. It is chaos. There is disorder of every type. And so the sea, whenever you come across it in the scriptures, understand as a force of destruction and death. This is why God suspends the sea for Israel to walk through in the Exodus, but then closes it down upon the Egyptians. And so in this passage, notice Jesus rebukes the chaos. He rebukes that which is the cause of destruction and death. And so what is that? What is, what is this describing? Well, this is a revelation of his divinity. That is the point. This is a declaration of deity, a declaration of power and, and might. This is a declaration, in other words, that Jesus is God. This is not normal. This is an expression of power that has no parallel where no one can manipulate the wind and the water but God alone. There are a lot of things even in our technologically advanced society that we've been able to accomplish. There are a lot of powerful things that we've been able to create. Think of things like engines and dynamite and space rockets and trains and atomic or nuclear power, but in all of that, we are nowhere near being able to control something like the weather. 
and especially in an instant. That is a level of power that is unthinkable. That is a level of authority that belongs to deity. And notice, he doesn't just affect the weather or hope to alter it in some way. Rather, he commands it and it obeys him. And in a moment. In fact, Matthew describes the enormity of the storm with the phrase in the Greek of seismos megos, literally mega seismic event. And yet it yields at the command of his word. And so again, what is, what is that saying? Well, for Jews who would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, this would have been utterly shocking to them. In fact, they understand that creation obeyed this voice once before. In Genesis chapter 1, there is only one voice or one word ultimately that all of creation submits to, and that is the word of God alone. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, remember, God spoke and creation was. It was no challenge for him. This was no great feat. This was unbelievably casual. And because the authority was bound up in his word, he literally spoke and creation was. His word is what brought forth life. His word is what brought order to the chaos. And so being some good Jews, they all knew this. And yet before their very own eyes, the very same thing seems to be happening. In fact, it's somewhat humorous. In Mark's account, in chapter 4 and verse 39, Mark says it this way. He says, and he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Literally, he shushed it. It's the verb of to muzzle something. He literally went, shh. It's a level of casualness that makes the response of these disciples all the more pronounced. This is serious authority. There were no dramatics here. There was no incantation. There was no magic phrase or witchery that Jesus did. He literally just shushed it. And immediately, notice, immediately everything obeyed him, both wind and waves. In fact, to stop the wind would be one thing, but that in itself wouldn't immediately do anything, would it? That wouldn't immediately settle the water. And so notice both the wind and the water obey him and in a moment. And so for a group of Jews who understand the nature of God's word in creation, this then creates a different kind of panic. Notice second half of verse 25. In fact, If you wanted a fourth point, you could understand this as the storm then after the calm. This is the storm after the calm. Luke states, and they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? That is a rhetorical question with a known implied answer. Notice he doesn't say that they were confused and wondering. Rather, he states that they were fearful and amazed. And because this so obviously reveals who he is. This is no mere rabbi that they're dealing with. Can't be. In some way, this has to be God himself. And what makes his fear and amazement so dramatic in the scene is that he uses the word phobeo, from which we get phobia. And so this is a legitimate soul-wrenching kind of fear. This is the kind of fear where your stomach just drops and then twists. 
fact, notice he even piles up the terms here. He uses two descriptors, which again is very unlike Luke. And so he's trying to heighten the drama and just capture the intensity of the moment, the the intensity of the fear here that overtakes him. In fact, by doubling up on the terms, he wants us to understand that this was a reaction or a fear that was greater. Catch this. It was far greater than the fear of even the storm. And so what is this? Why is this so shocking to them? They've seen miracles before. Well, at one level, as you can understand, you're realizing that this is a person with some serious authority. You don't get to just shush the weather and have it listen to you. But perhaps the only way to truly describe the meaning of Luke here is to see it. In fact, as you know, this is a passage for which there have been many paintings painted over the centuries. In fact, you've probably seen some of these yourself. It's always a scene of high and violent waves. The sky's usually black. The disciples are all barely hanging onto the sails. The boat's about ready to be tipped. It's just chaos. It's that perfect mixture of fear and disorder. And in all of that, the center of the scene is usually focused on a Jesus with his hand stretched out, his leg up on the boat, ready to calm the storm. And that is almost every single painting that you see. And it's a very good scene. It's a very provocative way to capture the presence of Jesus in the midst of chaos. But there is another painting of this passage, and one commentator pointed it out in his commentary, and so I went and I looked it up. And in this particular painting, and it's the only one that's been painted like this that we know of, but he actually paints the scene to where the storm is now perfectly calm. And so while most painters capture the essence of verse 24 and and that chaos of the storm, this particular artist captures verse 25. And what is so penetrating about the painting is that he's not focused on Jesus' ability to calm the storm. Rather, what he's trying to capture is the response of the disciples after Jesus calms the storm. And I think it is one of the most devastating paintings. And because he paints it to where all that you can think about is the sheer terror of these men. In fact, he paints it to where their eyes are almost a pure white. Total shock, total fear. Pure awe at what has just happened. And I find that to be a much more accurate rendition of the meaning of Luke. And because the point of the story is not, hear this, it is not about Jesus calming the storms of your life, which is how it's often taught. This is not about Jesus fixing those hard situations and circumstances in your life. Rather, the point of the passage is to communicate and hear it again that Jesus is God. That is the point of this text. And so what the artist faithfully captures is that what makes the disciples so afraid is not that they think that God is somehow far from them in the midst of their difficulty. Rather, what makes them recoil in horror is that they've come to realize that the God of all creation, both maker of heaven and earth, is sitting in their boat. And 
This was a shattering revelation, stunning revelation. They were beginning to think that Jesus was perhaps the Messiah, but in no way were they at all thinking that the Messiah was going to somehow be God himself. And so in an instant, they are suddenly overtaken by complete terror. This is now a whole new level of panic, a whole new kind of fear. In fact, notice again the question, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Implied answer, God himself. And so the most important point of this passage is for you to understand exactly who Jesus is. There is nothing worse than to conclude that he was just a mere moral teacher, that he was merely a worker of miracles, that he merely appeared to operate mightily in the power of God, rather the single most important fact about him, which is a fact that all of us have to wrestle with, is that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God himself. And because, just like in Genesis, notice, it is his word that possesses authority over creation. There are none of you who can make things happen just because you speak it into existence. Which, by the way, is the evil of the word of faith movement. That is attempting to function as only God can function. And so this is the first of four passages revealing all the more who Jesus is. That he is God and maker of all creation. He's not just part of God. He's not just working in the power of God. Rather, he himself is the fullness of God. In fact, that is what Paul says of him in Colossians chapter 1 when he writes, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, talking about Christ, second person of the Trinity, in him all things hold together. This is why when he walks on water, it can hold him. He says, hold me. That's why he can break bread and it just keeps breaking, never runs out. He creates all things from nothing. He is the very source of life who holds all things together. That's why you can shush hurricane-like winds and they immediately obey him. In fact, there's no part of creation that does not bow to its maker. In fact, if you think about it, the only aspect that will not obey its maker in all things is mankind, right? Right? So the Proverbs tell us to go and observe the ant. The ant always does what it's supposed to do. And so insects and animals and trees and flowers, they all do what they were made to do always. Waves in the wind, sun, galaxy, all it functions as it was meant to function since it came into being and it can do no other. And yet the only aspect of creation and rebellion to its creator's word is that aspect that bears his very own image. 
In fact, as we'll see next time, even the demons can recognize him and obey him. They stand in fear of him. James tells us they shudder. And so for some reason, all of creation can hear its maker's word and respond to it, except for sinful man. Does not see or recognize Jesus, the very word of God who became flesh, the word of God who became flesh, as John tells us. They do not recognize Jesus to be who he truly is. Which, of course, is what he came to redeem, right? That's why the word became flesh. He came to redeem flesh. He came to reverse and redeem that which went so wrong. That's why anytime sinful man encounters a living God for the very first time in the scriptures, they fall on their face in utter terror, like we saw Peter do in chapter 5 and verse 8. And so here in this passage, they are beginning to see him now all the more for who he is. They're beginning to realize that they are dealing with something far bigger than they even knew. And their only response is one of sheer terror. And that is the right response every single time. In fact, that is the natural response to rightly understanding who Jesus is. You do not respond in glibness at his presence. Rather, you fall on your face at his presence. And you begin to understand that he is a holy and unblemished creator and sustainer of everything that is. The proper and natural response is always fear and awe. And we're going to see that develop over the next several passages after Jesus displays his power, whether it's over weather or the demonic or disease or even over death itself. The response in every single one of those passages is an uncontrolled fear by the people. We're going to see that there are their departing, they're falling down on their face, or in the account of the diseased woman, there's a literal shaking in response to who he is, verse 47 And so we see that this is not only to be the right response at the recognition of who he is, but it is also the natural response. That is to say that a person can't not do this when they come to a right understanding of him, when they have a high view of him and therefore a proper view of him. But what I want to point out for you is this very important statement of Jesus in the beginning of verse 25. Again, he is awakened by the fear of his disciples. And so after he silences the storm, he looks at him and says these very revealing words. Notice he states, so where is your faith? Where is your faith? That is the question. What this passage reveals is that it is never, hear this, it is never wrong to cry out to God when you're afraid. In fact, that is a sign that you're actually thinking rightly of him. Some people think that fear is somehow a lack of faith, but the fact that you go to him in your fear, that reveals your faith, reveals that you understand perhaps who he is. And so you should never feel ashamed to go to him when you're afraid. 
fact, sometimes he will use even incredibly difficult things and providentially bring them into your life to cause you to cry out to him. In fact, there are many things that in life we can just sort of manage on our own, right? And we oftentimes do. But have you ever been driven to a point where you know that something is completely out of your control? That you have no options, you have no ability to change or control anything about this? And so your only option is to yield to the sovereign purposes of God as you cry out to him in fear. And so it is not wrong ever to go to him in those times. Often, again, he is the one bringing those times, and so you ought to go to him. And so the issue here is not will you go to him in those times. Rather, the question is how will you go to him in those times? That is to ask, will your cry from a place of fear be also a cry of faith? Or will it be a cry of fear only? That is the critical distinction. In fact, what's interesting about this account is that these men have seen Jesus' miracles before. In fact, some of them have even had miracles performed on them, like Peter, James, and John in the beginning of chapter 5 in that catching of the fish. And so it might be somewhat strange to you and me that they should express such little faith in this passage. They've seen lepers cleanse. They've seen the lame walk. They've seen the blind be given sight. At this point, they've also seen dead people be raised. And so in light of witnessing such things, you think that they'd have some kind of faith. Well, the point to understand is that faith in Jesus at an intellectual level is simple enough when you're standing on the side or you're just sort of sitting in the pew as an objective observer. And it is always easy to know the right thing to believe or know the right thing to say that you believe when you're sort of outside the boat, so to speak. But the question remains to be seen, what will you express when all of a sudden things become personal? How will you respond when all of a sudden you find yourself being cast into your own personal trial and the waves of difficulty begin to fill up your boat? Things always have a way of changing when your faith becomes personally tested, is it not? When you're personally confronted with sickness and disease or perhaps you're the one who gets the call that you've got cancer. And what is so wonderful about this account is, again, notice, it is not wrong to have fear. That is not what he rebukes them for. The question is, what will you do in the midst of your fear? The cry here of we are dying in verse 24, that was not a cry of trust. In fact, Mark records it this way. He says, that some awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not even care that we are dying? I appreciate the honesty. 
How many times have you been in a trial and wondered if God has cared for you? And so this was a cry of fear or a cry of resolve stemming from forgetting, or in this case, not yet seeing who Jesus truly is. Again, it's never wrong to have fear, but the question is, will you trust him in the midst of that fear? Will you be like David, who in Psalm 56 in verse 3, resolved within his soul, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, O God? Notice it's not when I'm afraid, I will no longer fear. Rather, it's when I'm afraid or I'm in the midst of that fear, I will put my trust in you. Beloved, sometimes in life, God brings some really scary things, does he not? Some of you have even cried out from a state of unbelief that you are perishing. Meaning that you have no hope because you think that God has forgotten you. You think that you've been left alone and that God is just sort of sitting above the clouds all the while the sea that is your life rages. But you have forgotten when that thought begins to control you and it will be a thought that all of us will have. But what we have forgotten is that God is not above the clouds as a neutral observer Rather, if you are his, what will keep you steady in the midst of the trial is to remember that he is still, notice, he is still in your boat. He is right in your boat. He is aware. And unlike what these disciples thought, he cares. When we fearfully doubt, all that means is that we have forgotten that God is intimately aware of our lives. He orchestrates the moments. He even powerfully provides these moments, these scary moments. He even directs your steps so that sometimes you have no choice but to sail headlong into the storm. And yet what is so critical to remember is that just because he is in your boat that does not mean that the storm won't come. But it does mean that you have to remember that the storm is no big deal for the sovereign Lord of the universe. That he is still in control. In fact, he is the one directing the wind and the waves. He is directing, hear this, he is directing the details of your trial. And so what I want you to understand is that there is no promise in this passage that he will somehow calm the storms of your life, as it's often preached. But what you can't forget, which I think is something far better, is that no matter what storm may come, he is always in the boat with you in the midst of the storm. And he is in omnipotent control. Every detail, every moment, all the time. And so what you have always is simply an opportunity to trust. That is what a trial is every single time. It is always an occasion to trust him. 
God brings scary things into our lives, but the question is, will you let the fear control you and turn the storm into an occasion for unbelief? Or will you recognize that Jesus Christ, the very God of the universe, is in the midst of the storm, upholding both you and the storm, and so that though you may fear, you can now learn to trust him? So as one man said on this, fear plus doubt equals panic in the storm. But fear plus faith equals stability in the storm. But either way, there's still a storm. And so again, I say to you, your response in the midst of that will not prevent the storm, nor will your response somehow just make the storm go away. That is something totally out of your control. You do not control trial. But your response stemming from a right understanding of who Jesus is and understanding that he is not far from you, that will determine whether you panic or you persevere. And notice the storm here didn't somehow create the unbelief, but it did reveal it. Unbelief is something that was already there. And so God is in the business of refining our faith, of refining where we still have unbelief. For some of you, that means coming to Jesus for the very first time. Sometimes he uses difficulties to draw you to him, to force you to realize that you're not actually in control of anything. It is so easy to be arrogant and to speak with such authority when life is going well for you. But the moment that true difficulty and true hardship will enter your life, to where you begin to realize that you have very little authority in this world and very little authority to direct the steps of even your own life, sometimes that has a way of drawing you to him. It has a way of causing you to stop fighting and resisting and simply acknowledge that you're nothing more than a creature living out your life before the eyes of an almighty creator who truly guides every step and every event in this world. And yet in his kindness, he takes notice of you. He brings a hardship into your life to draw you to him. And for others of you who are in Christ, God has a way of rocking the boat sometimes, doesn't he? If you're in Christ or you've been in Christ, at some point this will happen to you. But if you're in Christ, you'll also know how to interpret that. You understand what's going on. You understand that God is up to something. You understand that he has not left you, that he has not forsaken you. Now, it might feel like that at times, but again, the beautiful thing about the passage is that though you may cry out, even in unbelief at times, the truth is you're still his. And the truth is he is still there. And he still hears you. And why? Well, precisely because you're his though you may doubt. And so even in your unbelief at times, that will not overcome his love for you. It is a sovereign love that saved you, but it is also a sovereign love that sustains you. That is to say that it is not a love conditioned upon your response to him. He doesn't stop loving you. He doesn't stop caring for you or stop unholding you just because you have moments of doubt. His love for you is never a function of your response to him. It is always 
a function of his own will, sovereign will. Whether you're talking about salvation or sanctification. In fact, turn with me to James 1. Give me two minutes. Passage that you know well, James chapter 1. Toward the end of your New Testament, James, the half-brother of Jesus and disciple, starting in verse 2. Notice, and it's a command. He says, consider it all joy. How much is all? Sure. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, literally multicolored trials. And why? Well, because you know something. So the pathway to joy in the midst of the trial, notice, begins with the mind. This is not a subjective feeling. This is an objective knowledge. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing, so you got to know something, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the testing of your faith, that, that is this trial that you're walking through, is not for no purpose. There's tremendous purpose, and because notice, it is producing something. And what is it producing? Verse 4, well, let endurance, that is your perseverance in the midst of your trial, though it may be difficult. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is talking about your faith. But if any of you lacks wisdom, here's a command, let him ask of God. By the way, that is not a prayer for wisdom in general. Rather, the context here is for wisdom for how to persevere in the midst of your trial. And if you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That is a promise to you in your day of trial. You notice the qualification of the promise. It is given generously and without reproach. That is, he does not begrudge you coming to him. So he might not promise to calm the storm in your life because he's using it for a purpose, but he has promised to give you the stuff to be able to endure. And again, why didn't he just calm the storm? Why does he bring the trial? Well, because listen to this, he is more interested, beloved, in your holiness than your happiness. He is more interested in sanctifying you than only giving to you an unbelieving life of comfort and ease. Verse 6, but he must ask in faith. Notice that important qualifier. You must ask in faith without any doubting. Why? For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. It's almost like James is picking up on imagery from a past experience. But that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. That is wisdom for how to navigate the trials of life in a manner that truly produces something stronger, a faith that is stronger, which again is the goal. And so there is purpose in trial. And where fear overtakes you, that is when you have forgotten this. Trial is always an opportunity to trust. 
Either your faith will grow or God will be good to keep you there until you do grow, but either way, it is still good. If you have eyes to see. And he is there. He's not merely behind the clouds watching the chaos of your life. But in some way, he is in the boat. And he is in total control, orchestrating, sustaining, upholding. So the question is, will you trust his word? Do you believe that his word is sovereign and possesses power over everything? And if you do, though you may fear, and though trial may come, beloved, you will never fall. That is his promise to you. Let's pray. And so, Father, I do pray for all in this room that you might show us all the more each and every day who you are and who it is that we are before you. Pray for all that their hope might be firmly fixed in the truth of your word, that those who need to be awakened to the truth of the gospel, that you might be pleased to awaken them. And those who simply need to remember and be comforted in the truth of who you are and what it is that you've done and what you continue to do every single day, pray that you might cause their eyes to once again look to you afresh. To remember that you carry their very life and circumstances in your hand. And that if they're a son or a daughter of the kingdom, and there is no circumstance for which you are not there, for which you're not present in producing something in them, Namely, a faith which is right now being made perfect and complete. And so I do ask that you would store up these truths within us this morning, especially as we now sing and remember the Lord's death and the Lord's supper. May we lift up our eyes upon you and be refreshed to the truth of who you are. That you are a God who has taken notice of us we who are but mere dust. And so may we now sing with great joy as I ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.